Clearly, we see that 2020 was a year filled with stories of research and discovery through translational science, including several public health crises, ranging from gun violence impacting our local community. When someone has an outbreak of violence, individuals around them are more likely to experience violence as well, and so then it spreads. If somebody is infected with the flu and they're around other people, they're more likely to get the flu. And same thing with violence. To a vaping epidemic injuring our national community. There's a lot of concern about e-cigarette use. The Surgeon General declared e-cigarette use an epidemic in youth. So from that standpoint, it's definitely a public health crisis. To an unprecedented coronavirus pandemic plaguing our global community. Certainly the COVID-19 pandemic has exposed health inequities and vulnerable populations. Countries of the world need to work together towards their respective health and safety. We'll take a look back at these and more inside this special 2020 Year in Review edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. Welcome to CTSI Discovery Radio. I'm your host, Brian Belmer. CTSI Discovery Radio is brought to you by the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin. The CTSI is a consortium of researchers, doctors, scientists, and others representing eight institutions, including the Medical College of Wisconsin, Milwaukee School of Engineering, Marquette University, the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, Children's Wisconsin, Freighter Hospital, Versity Blood Center of Wisconsin, and the Zablocki VA Medical Center. Our mission is advancing health through research and discovery. We began our 2020 year of shows by focusing on a public health crisis that has plagued our community, gun violence. Fortunately, a new initiative was launched aimed at reducing gun violence by addressing it as a public health issue. It's called 414-LIFE. Reggie Moore is director of the Office of Violence Prevention in the City of Milwaukee Health Department. It's a pervasive issue, it's a preventable issue. The same way that we find school shootings, intolerable daily gun violence that we see in urban communities around this country, is just as equally intolerable. And we have to rely more than just cops and courts to deal with this issue. We have to deal with it as a public health issue. Dr. David Milia is Trauma Medical Director at Freighter and the Medical College of Wisconsin. Milwaukee is a small community, but our level of violence actually impacts us greatly. We rank within the top 10 to 15 major cities as far as violent crimes per capita, homicides per capita, and gun violence per capita. We are a relatively small city with such focused violence epicenters. Dr. Terry Darun Cassini is a health psychologist at Fredericton the Medical College of Wisconsin and an expert in helping survivors of traumatic experiences. If you look at how violence functions, it functions very similarly to any other sort of infectious disease in that when someone has an outbreak of violence, if they are inflicted by a violent experience, individuals around them are more likely to experience violence as well. For example, someone might come here with a gunshot wound and their family members might be enraged and they may feel a sense of desire to retaliate. And so then it spreads. If somebody is infected with the flu and they're around other people, they're more likely to get infected with the flu. And same thing with violence. Learn all about 414 Life on our January show episode number 69.
In February, we learned about living with lupus, an autoimmune disease affecting over one and a half million Americans. Dr. David Gaisley is an assistant professor, Department of Medicine, Division of Rheumatology, at Freitert and the Medical College of Wisconsin. I think it is kind of the quintessential autoimmune disease, and so the best explanation for autoimmune disease in general would be the immune system, rather than it being there to fight off infection, at some point, turned against itself and starts attacking the body at almost any location of the body, and that's what lupus is. It can affect almost any organ system in the body. Among the most vulnerable... About 90% of lupus patients are women, and African Americans, Asian Americans, and Hispanic Americans have a higher incidence than Caucasians with lupus. We also learned about a clinical trial that's addressing the disparity of lupus among African-American females from Dr. Edith Williams, Associate Professor in the College of Medicine, Department of Public Health Sciences at the Medical University of South Carolina. It's very evident that African-American women suffer the greatest burden from lupus. If we can make improvements within this group, then really we're moving the meter with regard to healthcare utilization, healthcare costs, and the public health burden of the disease considerably. And we heard from a woman in our community battling lupus. Everything that I do is very calculated. So I have to really calculate how much I can get done in a day so that my energy is used wisely. Whether I talk about it all the time or I don't, it's still present physically and psychologically for me. I can't get away from it. I accept it. I have lupus, but lupus doesn't have me. Hear her inspiring story of living with lupus and much more on our February show, episode number 70. Our March show focused on another public health crisis in our community, this time looking at vaping. Although it's been marketed as a safer alternative to tobacco smoking, Federal, state, and local health officials have issued warnings about the dangers of vaping as health experts continue to discover risks associated with it. We heard from Dr. Matthew Stanton, clinical assistant professor in the pharmacy school at the Medical College of Wisconsin and clinical toxicologist and certified poison specialist in the Wisconsin Poison Center at Children's Wisconsin. He tells us that while the process of vaping is simple, it can cause complex health issues. The most common ones obviously are nicotine, since initially it was supposed to be a nicotine replacement therapy. There's essential oils, some have metals in them, nickel, lead, cadmium. We know that some of these can be toxic just on their own, and that could be contributing to the problem going on, or the development of problems in the future. So what was once hailed as an important product for tobacco smoking cessation is resulting in unintended consequences and outcomes. It took us decades to figure out how bad just smoking cigarettes was for you. And vaping is really in its infancy still. The problems that have stemmed from it have shown that some of those patients end up with really bad outcomes, including death. Dr. Luella Amos has seen the unintended consequences of vaping firsthand. As a pediatric pulmonologist at Children's Wisconsin, she says vaping and its known health risks are both a public health concern and a public health crisis. I would say both. There's a lot of concerning factors about e-cigarette use and the effects on health, but it definitely is a crisis in terms of our youth. 
the Surgeon General declared e-cigarette use an epidemic in youth. So from that standpoint, it's definitely a public health crisis. Because Dr. Amos has seen young people come into the emergency department at Children's Wisconsin with serious lung injuries from vaping. When we do imaging, like a chest x-ray, air is black and white is tissue. So sometimes you see white in the lung. There's fluid, there's something that's taking up the space that should be occupied by air. When we get fluid from the lungs, we look at the cells and sometimes we see fat in those cells. Sometimes we see blood in the airways. It's just a very confusing picture, but what we're seeing is not normal. The lungs are reacting to something that is not supposed to be there. We also heard from Dr. Kimberly Hefia, a research scientist at the Yale School of Medicine's Center for Health and Learning Games, where we focus on developing and evaluating video game-based interventions with the goal of reducing risk and promoting healthy behaviors, social good, and education. An estimated 28% of high school students are now currently vaping, and unfortunately about 11% of middle school students are now vaping. Can we convince them to stop? Hear it all in Breathtaking, The Serious Risks of Vaping, episode number 71. As we prepared for our April show, our community, our nation, our entire planet was rocked by a global health crisis never before seen in our lifetime. We don't know a lot about it, and we have to assume that everybody is at risk because nobody's gotten sick from it previously, and there is no vaccine. The COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic led us to seek better understanding of exactly what it is and isn't. There are a lot of misconceptions where this is being called just another flu virus. I think it's very important to understand that those viruses are very different for many, many reasons. First of all, coronaviruses and influenza viruses belong to two completely different viral families. This is a brand new coronavirus that has just entered the human population. So there is no immunity at any level against this coronavirus. Looking for answers on how to overcome it. What can we do as an individual to practice that social distancing so that we as a community can bring down the number of infections happening. And the whole point of this is not to inconvenience you. The point is to bring down the numbers of individuals who you come into contact with who might be sick and the number of individuals who you could potentially spread the virus to. And causing us to wonder and ask what happens next. Suddenly the halls are quiet. The doors, as much as they want to be open, aren't able to be open for fear of spreading the virus and the idea of having best practices. We don't know what the long-term impact will be on an organization like this one and others. So as we were first hearing and learning about it, we reached out to several healthcare experts and thought leaders for perspectives on the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic. Hear them on our April show episode number 72. As we settled into our new normal of life during a global pandemic, we began doing our part to stop the spread of COVID-19. But for many, social distancing comes at a cost, oftentimes leading to stress and even anxiety. In May, we focused on the psychological impacts of the pandemic. Dr. Sadie Larson is an associate professor in the Department of Psychiatry who sees adult patients at both the Freydert and the Medical College of Wisconsin's Behavioral Health Center and the Zablocki VA Medical Center. You know, I've heard people say that we should call 
call it physical distancing rather than social distancing because when we're going through stressors, the best thing for people is to be able to connect with other people, to kind of talk through all this stuff, and to have that be harder at this time, it's really challenging and it feels unnatural. When we're more stressed, we're more anxious, then we also tend to get more irritable, angry, all kinds of things. All of that irritability is kind of a common consequence of just being more anxious. Dr. David Cipriano is an associate professor in the Department of Psychiatry, Child and Adolescent Program at the Medical College of Wisconsin, who says children and teens are also significantly affected by the pandemic. I think a lot of them are missing their usual routines, their activities, whether it's sports or music lessons, there are less outlets, you know, the way we blow off steam or the way we cope or what have you. For kids, it's the same. And then just the socializing. They are missing their friends, feeling a little bit cut off, you know, a little bit isolated. Again, not unlike a lot of adults. Hear more on our May show, episode number 73. From the onset of the pandemic, medical experts warned that patients with pre-existing conditions are more vulnerable to infection from the COVID-19 coronavirus. This is turning out to be true, as many with pre-existing conditions experience less positive outcomes, including death. Among them are patients suffering from cancer and cardiovascular-related diseases. Dr. Sherry Ann Brown is Director of Cardio-Oncology and Assistant Professor, Department of Medicine, Division of Cardiology at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Patients who have pre-existing heart disease or risk factors for heart disease, such as high blood pressure, diabetes, obesity, are all at high risk for having a more severe course of infection if they have COVID-19. And it's also similar for patients with cancer. Their course is also more challenging and more severe. And then if the patient has both, that's even more challenging for them. While the severity of COVID-19 varies, Patients with pre-existing cardiovascular disease and cancer are on the severe end of the spectrum. What we're seeing in the hospitals across the country and the world suggests that when patients have heart disease at baseline, they tend to be sicker with COVID-19. They tend to need to be in the hospital more often. And some need to be in intensive care unit and may need a ventilator for breathing or assistance for cardiovascular system and breathing. And those who have pre-existing heart disease or cancer tend to be on more of the advanced end of the spectrum. Learn more in our June show on treatment of COVID-19 patients with pre-existing conditions, episode number 74. Among the many ways COVID-19 has affected our nation's health and healthcare system, the pandemic has not only dramatically impacted the landscape of how healthcare is conducted, it's also advancing where and when it's delivered. COVID-19 caused the need to socially separate, but life must go on, and that includes healthcare to ensure healthy living. Fortunately, we have smartphones, laptop computers, and tablets to keep us connected digitally. And never has that been more vital than during this public health crisis. In July, we discovered the rapid increasing need for virtual care or telemedicine. 
Dr. Bradley Karate is Assistant Professor of Medicine, Division of General Internal Medicine at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Physical distancing was going to be one of our most important mechanisms to prevent the spread of COVID-19. And so we set out clear aims as it relates to our virtual care and telemedicine program as we wanted to keep people safe, and that's both our patients and then also to protect our staff from patients that could be seen virtually to reduce exposure and also the need for personal protective equipment. Virtual is really one of the best forms of personal protective equipment that we could have. And Dr. Crotty says as more virtual care takes place, he expects more refinement and focus on the patient experience. One of the things that I think we'll be going forward in the future with is instead of every six-month visits, doing a series of shorter touch points that are likely to be done by video but could be over the phone and honestly could be over text message between clinician and the patient to address a single issue or to adjust the medicine rather than saving everything for a six-month visit where everyone feels pressure to get everything done at that time. Those types of check-ins, I think, are likely to be valued by both the patients and clinicians, too. We also learn that telemedicine is a viable option for providing quality health care to patients with pre-existing conditions, even during COVID-19. Dr. Joshua Meskin is Director of Cardiology and Associate Professor, Department of Medicine, Division of Cardiology at MCW. Cardiovascular disease is one of those pre-existing conditions that puts people at the highest risk. So we wanted to be very conscious of limiting the risk to our patients because they were at such high risk for complications from the coronavirus. We are seeing about half of our patients virtually at this point, and that is nowhere near the very, very small percentage that we were engaging prior to the pandemic. We can do virtual care very well for a large portion of our patients. But if they have issues that can't be addressed virtually, we still safely deliver in-person care as well. In August, our show focused on a group of researchers building an international registry of patients with sickle cell disease who also contracted COVID-19 in hopes of providing better outcomes for those patients battling both conditions. Dr. Julie Panapinto is a professor in the Department of Hematology and Oncology, Division of Pediatrics at the Medical College of Wisconsin, and a key member of the Mac Fund Center for Cancer and Blood Disorders at Children's Wisconsin. We know historically patients with sickle cell disease can get quite ill. We were very worried that patients with sickle cell disease would be at particular risk because it appeared that COVID was causing pneumonia, which for our patients can be quite problematic and can result in severe illness. We needed to come together as a community of providers to try to understand what people were learning as they were taking care of patients with sickle cell disease and COVID across the world. And we needed to learn it very quickly. Dr. Amanda Brando is an associate professor, Department of Pediatrics, Division of Hematology and Oncology Pediatrics at MCW and another integral member of the MacFun Center for Cancer and Blood Disorders. On our registry, it's been pretty interesting representation throughout the world. So we have cases reporting from Canada, Brazil, Nigeria, Greece, Oman, Switzerland, and Sweden right now. 
So we have lots of areas aware of our registry now and contributing cases. All providers of sickle cell disease want to help each other understand the outcomes and ultimately help our patients. So I think everyone has the goal at their forefront of how do we make this better for the collective whole, patients and providers. Discover how this international sickle cell disease and COVID-19 registry is collecting important data that's critical for research. Listen to episode number 76 of our show. The year 2020 brought global health into greater focus than ever before. Considering the vastly different levels of public health and healthcare systems throughout the world, especially during COVID-19, the concept of global health has perhaps never been more important. In September, we explored this by gaining perspectives from some global health experts right here in our community. First, we heard from Dr. Stephen Hargarten, Professor of Emergency Medicine and Associate Dean of the Office of Global Health at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Certainly the COVID-19 pandemic has really across the globe exposed health inequities and vulnerable populations. Countries of the world need to work together towards their respective health and safety. More and more, we have to collaborate and partner with communities and countries to not only battle this pandemic, but also the next one or other vexing issues that plague our globe. That, to me, is the opportunity we have with this extraordinary moment in our planet's history. Dr. Megan Schultz is an associate professor of pediatrics and co-director of the Global Health Pathway at MCW. She tells us the health of all nations and collaboration between nations is especially important in addressing global health issues today. We are living in an increasingly globalized world, especially things like infectious diseases, can spread quite easily as we're seeing currently with coronavirus. So intersection between nations is highly relevant during the current pandemic, but also just going to be increasingly relevant because it's really impossible to erect some national borders and say, you know, we're going to be safe in here. The fact that one tiny coronavirus particle that started in the Wuhan province is now devastating places in Texas and Florida is global health, and that's why it should matter to us. We also heard from Dr. Ann Dressel, assistant professor and director of UWM's Center for Global Health Equity. She says defining global health is difficult because it's so multidimensional. And COVID-19 adds another level of complexity. It's really important for us to remember that we're part of the globe. It's not just what's happening somewhere else. It's what's happening here as well. For many of us here in the U.S., it's the first time we're experiencing a global health problem that is affecting us firsthand. It's helping us to realize that we got to pay attention to what's going on in the world because it can affect us at home. The COVID-19 pandemic is a great opportunity to raise awareness about the importance of global health and the need to educate ourselves and friends and family about it. Hear global health perspectives in times of a global health pandemic on our September show, episode number 77. Epidemiology is the branch of healthcare that focuses on the incidence, distribution, and, hopefully, the control of the spread of diseases and other factors that threaten our health. In October, we learned how epidemiologists are working hard to collect critical data that will eventually lead to evidence-based discoveries in controlling the spread of the COVID-19 pandemic. We turned to a couple of epidemiology experts. 
First, Dr. Kirsten Beyer, Associate Professor in the Institute for Health and Equity, Division of Epidemiology, and Co-Director of the Global Health Pathway at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Epidemiology is always critically important, but I think we feel it most at times like this. The reason that it's so important is that it provides the information we need to make difficult decisions quickly. Epidemiologic surveillance, so the idea of systematically collecting, managing, analyzing, and interpreting data is actually an essential public health function that goes on all the time. But especially during a time like this with a lot of uncertainty and fast-moving development, we need to be able to rely on the best information we have at hand in order to make difficult decisions that affect people's lives. And she adds, we all have a role and a responsibility in beating COVID-19. COVID-19 continues to unfold. What I know about it today is going to be dwarfed by what I know about it in a week or two. But what we know so far tells us that individual behaviors have a lot to do with transmission, which puts some power into people's hands. Ordinary people are able to impact the course of this epidemic. We also heard from Dr. Laura Cassidy, Professor and Director, Division of Epidemiology and Research Director of the Institute for Health and Equity at MCW who provided insight and definitions for many of the terms we hear associated with the COVID-19 pandemic. For example, she explains the difference between isolation and quarantine. Yeah, and I think this causes a lot of confusion using these two different terms, but we use them because when we talk about isolation, that is somebody who has tested positive for COVID-19 and we need to isolate them from others so they don't spread the virus. So that might be if you live alone, staying in your apartment, having your food delivered on the front porch and isolating for 10 days after your positive test, because if you go out and interact with people, you could spread the disease. When we talk about quarantine, we're talking about separating those people who might have been exposed to keep them from spreading the disease. So that would be a person has COVID-19, they don't know it, say Jane has COVID-19 and she interacts with Bob. Then Jane finds out she's positive and she says, okay, I have to go isolate now and stay away from other people. But Bob is considered a contact. He's potentially exposed. We don't know if Bob has it or not, but Bob should go home and self-quarantine until he gets the results of his COVID test to find out if he actually got the virus or not. Learn about the epidemiology of diseases, including COVID-19. Check out episode number 78. We live in a world filled with tiny microorganisms that can threaten our public health. And never has this been more clear than throughout 2020. Last month, our November show focused on how vaccinations can make us immune to many otherwise dangerous, often deadly diseases. But what are vaccines? How do they work? And is it safe for us and our children to be vaccinated? Dr. Joseph Barbieri is a professor in the Department of Microbiology and Immunology and director of the Medical Scientist Training Program at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Vaccines are parts of microorganisms that are in themselves not toxic. When administered to us, we recognize it as foreign 
and we make an immune response to it. What we're doing is initially responding to a vaccine, and the next time we see that antigen, we rapidly make a very large amount of these antibodies, and that allows us to respond to an infection that we might not have seen for 10 years or even longer. Dr. Anna Hupler is an assistant professor, Department of Pediatrics, Division of Infectious Diseases, and Microbiology and Immunology at MCW. As for the safety of vaccines, even for our children, she says emphatically, Vaccines are safe. They are some of the best studied medicines that exist. There are really rigorous standards vaccines must meet before they're released for public use. And even after that, there's a robust system in place to make sure that these vaccines maintain their high safety records. There is no other substance that we give to children or adults that we track as closely for safety as vaccines. Hear more about vaccinations in episode number 79. COVID-19 made 2020 a really challenging year health-wise and otherwise. But a new year brings new hope. So in the encouraging words of some of our guests. In times of great crisis, great strengths emerge. And when we get through this, I think we'll all be a little stronger, a little smarter, and more compassionate. Reach out to someone to let them know that we're going to get through this together. Because in the end, community health is about the health of the individuals that comprise that community. At some point, we are going to see the light at the end of this tunnel. And when that happens, that will be cause for great celebration. If we work together as a nation, one nation, that's what we are, we can do a really good job. So I say don't weaken. Be patriotic, and we'll get through this. And with that, we wrap up this special 2020 Year in Review edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. As always, we thank all of our interview guests, and we especially thank you for listening to, supporting, and sharing CTSI Discovery Radio throughout this year and in the year to come. On behalf of the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin and all of our affiliate partners and members, I'm Brian Belmer, wishing you warm, safe holidays and a happier, healthier new year. To listen to the podcast of any of our shows on demand, please visit our website at ctsi.mcw.edu. CTSI Discovery Radio is written, produced, and hosted by Brian Belmer in collaboration with WMSE Radio. The CTSI and this program are under the direction of Dr. Reza Shakir.